0: Good morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Perry Bider, my pronouns are he and him, and I'm the officiant today. As you may have noticed, I'm speaking from my house instead of from the lectern at WES. Uh, that's because our wonderful but small volunteer team of tech folks did not have enough people available today to produce the hybrid service from West that we've gotten accustomed to. If you would like to minimize the chance of this happening again, the tech team would love to have you join them and would be only too happy to train you in the use of their equipment. That said, welcome to everyone this morning, whether you're watching on Zoom in the hall, watching on Zoom at home, or catching the recording later. Today is a good example of the fact that it's our values and our connections to each other that make us a community regardless of the methods we use to express them. Uh, in-person visitors, please stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. Online visitors, whether watching today or tuning in later, we invite you to send an email to Maceo at m-a-c-e-o-t at ethicalsociety.org or to fill out a connection form, which you can find at tiny.cc slash I will now read a few of the greetings that folks have written in in the chat. Uh, If you're in the hall and have a device with Zoom on it, feel free to join in. If not, you're welcome to look around and wave to each other. And folks at home, uh, if you like, you can use this time to get a candle to light during our candle lighting. So let's see who we have with us this morning. Trang says, good morning. Um, Ellie Kravitz, good morning from the Kravitz Farm. Well, okay. Um, Looks like uh, we may be having more people coming on a little more slowly this morning. Sarah Morris says, good morning, everyone. Excuse me while I Pause for refreshment. Julie Drizzen says, Good morning, y'all. Well, that may be it for now. I'm sure more people will join us. uh, as the uh, minutes tick by in. Oh, Sue Jacobson. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you, Sue. Glad to have you with us. It is good to connect and to share this time together. Uh, hi from Joe, London. Good morning, Joe. All right, I'll move on to today's opening words. which are from the book, Priest Daddy, a memoir by poet Patricia Lockwood. All my life I have overheard. All my life I have listened to what people will let slip when they think you are part of their we. A we is so powerful. It is the most corrupt and formidable institution on earth. Its hands are full of the crispest and most persuasive currency its mouth is full of received repeating language. The we closes its ranks to protect the space inside it where the air is different. It does not protect people. It protects its own shape. Our opening song today is Now Let Us Sing, and I invite everyone to sing along. muted, of course, if you're on Zoom. So since we're winging it a little bit this morning, I will uh, mention before we get to the Statement of Purpose that we've got more greetings that have come in from uh, Adam Limehouse, Shirley Storms, Laura DeShulo, and Sue Smith, So, oh, and Roberta Geyer, glad to have you all with us this morning. Okay, um, each week we read our Statement of Purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the Statement of Purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc readsop Things being as they are today, I will do the honors this morning and then our senior leader, Casey Slack, will lead the candle lighting. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As KC lights their candle, And those of you with candles at home do likewise. I invite everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all.
1: Good morning. We now come to a time for all ages. And you know, most of our times are for all ages, but this one is particularly focused on being accessible to everyone. Our story this morning is called Higgins, A Drop with a Dream, and it's by Christopher Husset. Once upon a time, there was a drop of water named Higgins. Higgins was no ordinary Drop of water. Higgins was a drop with a dream. He lived in a valley where it had not rained in a very long time. So all of the lovely green grass was turning brown. All the beautiful flowers were wilting and all the trees were starting to droop. Higgins had a dream that one day the valley would be a beautiful place again. What could he do? He was only one drop of water. One day, Higgins decided to travel around and tell others about his dream. All the other drops listened very politely, but nobody believed that his dream would come true. Higgins said one, get your head out of the clouds. You can't spend your whole life dreaming. Higgins decided that he had to do something to make his dream come true. So he began to think and think. And One day, as he was walking by a rusty old bucket, he got an idea. If enough of us drops of water got together in this bucket, he thought, there would be enough water to sprinkle on a few flowers to help them grow and be beautiful again. Eagerly. Higgins told everybody about his great idea, but they all thought he was being foolish. That Higgins is nothing but a dreamer, they said. He decided he had to do something to convince the others that he was right. So he said to them, I don't know about you, but I'm getting in the bucket. I hope some of you will join with me then there might be enough water to help at least some flowers grow beautiful again. So Higgins ran as hard as he could, hopped way up in the air and landed with a kerplunk in the bottom of the bucket. And there he sat, just a drop in the bucket. For a long time, Higgins was very lonely. It seemed like no one else was going to join him. But after a while, some of the other drops could see that the grass was dying and the flowers were wilting and the trees were drooping. They all agreed that something must be done. Suddenly, one drop shouted, I'm going in the bucket with Higgins. And he leaped through the air and landed, in the bucket. Then two other drops yelled, wait for us. And they hopped through the air and landed in the bucket. Then 10 drops, then 30, then 50. And then hundreds of drops came from all around just to hop in the bucket. Soon, the bucket was completely full of water. But there were still more drops that wanted to join. So they found another bucket and hopped in. Before long, there were two buckets of water, then three, then four, then 10, and then hundreds, and then thousands of buckets of water. Along came a powerful breeze that blew over all the buckets and all the water flowed together to make a mighty stream. Everywhere the water flowed, the grass turned green again and the flowers bloomed and the trees stood tall and straight once more. All of this happened because Higgins had a dream and his dream came true because he knew that although he was just a drop in the bucket, enough drops in the bucket make a bucket full. And when there are enough buckets with the wind behind them, then justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Casey. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of those who lost friends and family on September 11th, 2001, and of those whose birthdays or other happy memories from earlier years are now tainted by that association. As we listen to the chime, Let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love.
1: I invite you to take a moment to get settled wherever you are. Maybe you are in the hall, in a chair and you wanna get comfy, put your feet on the floor. Maybe you're at home and you wanna sit down on the floor or stretch or walk around a little bit. One of the benefits of being at home is there's a little more space to do what feels best for you. But as you listen to my voice, do whatever feels right for you in the moment, whatever will help you feel present here. Maybe instead of stretching or walking around, you need to grab your cup of coffee. I know I don't do well in the morning if I haven't had my caffeine. Chances are you, Some of you are like that too. Maybe you need a snack or something to fidget with so that you can be present. I invite you to do what you need, but while you do it, pay attention. Take some deep breaths and just be aware of the weird miracle of being anyone at all. When you're ready, bring your attention back to the group. Maybe take a couple more big, deep breaths. Have your snack or your coffee or your fidget toy. And just be here as we continue into our platform experience together. Thank you.
2: People get ready There's a train coming You don't need no baggage You just get on board All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming you don't need no ticket you just thank the Lord.
0: Today's reading is Connection as Resistance by UU Minister Erica A. Hewitt. In her 1975 theological treatise, Suffering, German liberation theologian Dorothy Zerla examines the ways that suffering can knit human beings closer together and can draw us more fully into the process of loving. She uses the term apatheia the inability to suffer, to describe the condition in which people become, quote, so dominated by the goal of avoiding suffering that it becomes a goal to avoid human relationships and contacts altogether. Isolation and apathy are forms of powerlessness. Both destroy, in Zerla's words, we are destroyed most thoroughly by that affliction that robs us of any possibility of loving any longer. The capacity we need the most is the capacity to keep on loving. If pain and suffering tempt us to become isolated and apathetic, Zerla argues, we must instead give voice to our suffering by creating, quote, a language of lament, that might draw us into solidarity. The theology offered by Dorothy Zerla echoes that of her rough contemporary, Hannah Arendt, who was a political theorist rather than a theologian. One of Arendt's most well-known assertions from her work, The Origins of Totalitarianism is that totalitarianism is organized loneliness and that the seed of loneliness is isolation, quote, the experience of not belonging to the world at all, which is among the most radical and desperate experiences of human beings. Therefore, resisting the isolation that breeds loneliness is not just an emotional, psychological, or even spiritual act, but also a political one. The blogger and critic Maria Popova puts it this way. Our insistence on belonging, community, and human connection is one of the greatest acts of courage and resistance in the face of oppression. The words of Erica Hewitt. We will now hear the words of West's senior leader, Casey Slatt.
1: I've been thinking about cults a lot lately for reasons that are perhaps obvious and reasons that are less. Now, before we go any further into this conversation, we have to stop and talk about a word that I just used, cult. Cult is a extremely charged and mostly useless word that I've chosen to use anyway, because it does point to something. In religious studies, we find that a cult is basically any religion that the dominant culture doesn't like. Christianity notably moved from being a cult to being a, if not the dominant global religion. One of the frequent jokes among scholars of religious studies is that a cult plus time equals religion. Religious studies scholars try not to use the word cult these days, at least the ones who are a little more honest in their work. But the thing that comes to your mind when I say cult, maybe the Rajanesh in the mountains of Wyoming following Osho and poisoning the locals, maybe the Heaven's Gate cult, maybe Jonestown, maybe something a little more modern, These are all characterized by fervor, zealotry, a charismatic and totalitarian ruler or leader, and ultimately by abuse. So cult is a complicated word that is often applied perhaps a little too broadly, but If we narrow our focus down, if we look at cults where what we mean is fervor, zealotry, a charismatic leader, and abuse, we find some interesting historical patterns. Cults and other new religious movements seem to come into vogue during times of crisis and uncertainty. It's hard to chart exactly because again, that definition is very slippery, but across the tides of at least the last couple hundred years of Western Anglo history, moments of mass uncertainty tend to predicate a rise in cult activity. One place it might be particularly easy to see this trend is in the late 60s and on into the 70s as the hopes of the early 60s with the civil rights movement and the beginnings of second wave feminism crashed in to the realities of political assassinations and the Vietnam War. We tend to over the course of history, want something new when it is clear that what has been happening before isn't working anymore. When ordinary protests fall on ears that will not hear. When the ways we've been living no longer make sense from these places, new ways of making sense bubble up. A lot of the times these moments of crisis come with deep alienation for individuals and really the whole society. And humans, we don't do great with alienation. We are fundamentally social creatures. The way that we survive is by being together more than almost anything else. And you can see in the way humans behave towards inanimate objects at times, that our desire to create a group is so high. Our desire to pack bond, if you will, is so high that people are known to become emotionally attached to their Roomba vacuum cleaners. It is common, so common as to be a joke, that people will name their Roomba or their car or some other inanimate object that they have a regular relationship with and will feel sad when the Roomba breaks or the car gets into an accident. Not sad for themselves, sad for the object. This sort of obsessive need to pack bond makes it really obvious why dogs were a good fit for us and why cats were so able to move into our lives and declare themselves members of our households. We need to be part of community. We need to witness one another. And, Increasingly, we aren't and we don't. In 2000, so 22 years ago now, Robert D. Putnam wrote Bowling Alone, a work studying a decrease in civic engagement over the course of the decades from the 1950s to the 1990s. What he found was that all forms of civic engagement were dramatically lower in the 90s than they had been in the 50s and even in the 60s. Not only did people vote at significantly lower rates, but membership in civic organizations, neighborhood clubs, et cetera, was at an all-time low. And I'll tell you, it certainly hasn't gotten any The title of the book comes from what he calls the most whimsical, yet discomforting bit of evidence of social disengagement that he had discovered. In 2000, more Americans were bowling than ever before, but bowling in organized leagues had plummeted. Between 1980 and 1998, the total number of bowlers in America increased by 10%, while league bowling decreased by 40%. He says, lest this be thought a wholly trivial example, I should note that nearly 80 million Americans went bowling at least once in 2001. That's nearly a third more than voted in the 2002 midterm elections. The time between 2000 and now has only grown our sense of alienation. Right after this book came out, the world got scary for many Americans in a way it hadn't been before. The anniversary we mark today of September 11th, 2001 really was a turning point for fear in American culture. And when we get scared, we will tend to withdraw and we will tend to be more easily isolated and more easily manipulated by the forces of cults and cultish groups. Now, after two years of pandemic, and more years than that of cultural strife that seems to pull us further and further apart. And I don't just mean on partisan lines, I mean further and further apart as in, it is not even worth it to have this conversation with someone who I think I agree with because I am simply so tired. When everything is more expensive, but most people make less. When we work more and have less time to socialize than we did even 20 years ago. Increased loneliness makes our culture ripe for cultish behavior. Cultish behavior runs the gamut from an obsessive commitment to CrossFit to significantly more concerning turns, such as the much documented Nexium pyramid scheme slash cult, which was rife with sexual abuse, to QAnon. In her book *Cultish: The Language of Fanaticism*, Amanda Montell writes. Modern cultish groups also feel comforting, in part because they help alleviate the anxious mayhem of living in a world that presents almost too many possibilities for who to be, or at least the illusion of such. She says, I once had a therapist tell me that flexibility without structure isn't flexibility at all. It's just chaos. That's how a lot of people's lives have been feeling. For most of America's history, there were comparatively few directions a person's career, hobbies, place of residence, romantic relationships, diets, aesthetic, everything could easily go in. But the 21st century presents folks, those with some privilege at least, with a cheesecake factory size menu of decisions to make. The sheer quantity can be paralyzing, especially in an era of radical self-creation when there's such a pressure to craft a strong personal brand at the same time that morale and basic survival feel more precarious for young people than they have in a long time. As our generational lore goes, millennials' parents told them they could grow up to be whatever they wanted. But then that cereal aisle of endless what-ifs and could-bes turned out to be so crushing that all they wanted was a guru to tell them which to pick. Now, if you've ever been faced with a literal cheesecake factory menu, you can imagine how overwhelming this is. If you've ever gone to the grocery store and faced with six different brands of cheddar cheese, found yourself maybe wanting to sit down and weep, you're familiar with this. As a culture, we suffer from severe decision fatigue all the time. Decision fatigue is what happens when you are asked to make too many choices and your brain simply will not anymore. People in positions of power, notably presidents, often have other people to make many little decisions for them. The president of the United States, for example, does not decide what they will have for breakfast. Somebody gives them breakfast and then they eat it and that is it. Similarly, but in a really different place, very powerless people do not make many decisions about their lives. Prisoners, but also soldiers entering training, soldiers throughout their lives as soldiers, do not make decisions about what they wear or what they eat. In the case of prisoners, we consider this a punishment. For soldiers, we consider it a way to get them to focus on what is important. Regardless, the rest of us are faced with a never ending set of decisions. I pick on meals because personally and for a lot of my contemporaries, the decision of what to eat every day is a source of endless frustration You mean to tell me that every day for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to decide several times a day what I want to eat. And I'm going to have to sift through all of the things anyone has ever said about what is healthy and how much money I have and how much energy I have and what foods happen to be nearby. And I'm supposed to do this on top of my job and maintaining relationships and building community and saving the world, what, what? In my household, we arrive once every three months at a question that goes like this. What is it that humans eat? We abruptly will not like the things we've been eating for the past three months. And suddenly it's as though we have not been people for most of 40 years. Like we don't know what a breakfast food is, much less which one we would want. When you think about this kind of decision fatigue and then expand it out to a whole life, right? What clothes do I buy and wear? Do I wear makeup? What kind of glasses do I buy? Where do I go to eat when I want to go to eat? Do I join this organization or this organization? Do I learn pottery or glass blowing or nothing at all? Do I play video games or read books? Do I even have time for any of that? Do I take this job or this job or this job or this job? Do I stay in my hometown or leave? Do I leave again? Do I leave again? Do I leave again? It is a truly exhausting number of choices. And though it is really tempting for me, certainly, to say that I don't experience this stress, to say that we are all very thoughtful people, who make our own decisions. Nobody is actually capable of making these decisions at the level we are asked to with the frequency we are asked to do it. We all fall back on the normal of our world, on this is what I've eaten for breakfast every day for a decade. This is where I've always bought my pants This is the community I have always been in. This is how we have always been. You can see where for people just starting to understand themselves or people experiencing an identity crisis, which is a lot of us, an organization that says, I have the answer Here is how you live. Wear these clothes, think these things. It could be really, really compelling. In her book, Cultish, Amanda talks about something called thought-terminating cliches. Thought-terminating cliches are phrases like Boys will be boys. It is what it is. Everything happens for a reason. It's all God's plan. And don't think about it too hard, which cause our brains to simply stop. Thought-terminating cliches are often tautological. They're circular, right? It is what it is. These phrases are employed by cults and cultish organizations to get people to avoid continuing to think. Here's the problem. They're also very useful. For a lot of us, for me, my brain will start going and will just whir and whir and whir and sometimes I need it to stop, not indefinitely, But for a minute, sometimes something is happening and you cannot figure it out. And so it is what it is, gives you an opportunity to let that go. However, lots of clauses today. However, stopping your thinking too often is dangerous. Letting yourself just nope out of all decisions though tempting, is not really a sustainable life path or not one that leads to a very good world. So we find these cultish organizations popping up. And traditional religion, when we think of traditional religion, I mean here really the Christianities. Christianity Christianities really struggle to fill any gaps that our society is experiencing, in part because they created so many of the gaps our society is experiencing. By becoming married to empire or capitalism, by switching out what might have once been a liberatory God for a restrictive, and controlling God who bears more resemblance to mammon than the God that I have read of in the Bible. Well, the latter half of least But these Christian organizations have long and documented histories of being not a lot better than the cultish organizations. They encourage people to stop thinking They have central figures who have way too much power and no questioning of authority. They have documented histories of abuse. Evangelical and Baptist churches are currently awash in controversy. In our opening words, Patricia Lockwood writes from her book, Priest Daddy, chronicling her childhood as the daughter of a Lutheran minister who converted to Catholicism and the rare circumstances of being the legitimate child of a Catholic priest about her experience of her father and her father's communities handling clergy sexual abuse. This is where her words about the protection of the special air inside come from. Belonging is vital to humans, but it is easy to abuse. Institutions in particular become more invested in protecting their own existence than in living out their values. Become more interested in special air in the inside that we all crave and love than in the right thing. So what does this have to do with us? Other than that we are people living at a breaking moment in history and people engaged in community that at least some of us think is religious. In a moment where people really need to belong to something, we can offer that in places where people want easy answers and to be told how to live. We can help ourselves and others tolerate complexity and uncertainty. We can say, you know, I don't necessarily have the answer to that either, but I'll be here and I'll talk to you and we will work through it together we can remind each other that it's okay to nope out of the decisions sometimes and call each other back when we are letting our own thought-terminating cliches run the show. In a world where power is so easily abused and so often abused, In a world full of institutions protecting their own special air more than focusing on doing the right thing, we can model thoughtful, ethical leadership and less anxious sharing of power. Community and belonging are some of the most important things humans. Community is powerful. Doing things together always works a little better than doing things on our own. We know more in community than any of us can know on our own. We can care more and more sustainably in community than any of us can do on our own. We have to be ready to be changed by community. We have to be ready to let go of our own sense of belonging in order to widen the circle. That sounds counterintuitive, but there is a moment when the circle breaks and then becomes whole again, new, different, bigger. We have an opportunity to share with the world ideas and practice that say, you don't have to have the answer to move forward. That say process is more important than power. That being together is more important than being right. We have the opportunity to choose getting good work done over being the most right people possible. We have the opportunity to change the world in some real and meaningful ways. It is my hope, my dream, my prayer, if you will allow that we will do this work together in the coming months and years, that we will use belonging well. We will help the world or at least the world around each of us tolerate uncertainty a little bit better, learn more about this planet and each other and treat this planet and each other better than we have been taught to treat it so far.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, A Lot of food for thought there. Shortly, we will have our community sharing time, which today will be all virtual. Uh, so if you are at home, or if you have a Zoom device with you in the hall, uh, you can write into the chat about what resonated with you in this platform today. First though, let's enjoy the musical response If every person in the world. Oh This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates in our own lives. I will open up my chat window and see what has come in so far. Uh, Art Sieben says, the book that has influenced my thinking more than any other is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It discusses how our brains simplify decision-making by using shortcuts. Our whole brain works like our visual system as in optical illusions. After about the 20th example of making an incorrect decision, one becomes very humble. The simplification of religions and cults is an extension of this simplification by the brain in my view. Sonia Cooper says, this platform reminded me of a time when I had a conversation with a close friend about how exhausting I found the way she talked with me about making plans to get together because it required me to make too many decisions one after the other. Peter Bishop says, as Casey was talking about decision fatigue, I was reminded of the large number of decisions that I have arranged not to make. This helps me with my philosophy work. Cynthia Goodman says a very profound platform, food for thought about current issues and the rise of Trumpism. Uh, Laura Steele's asking, how come Perry and Casey are not in the hall? For those of you who joined us a little late today, the reason is because our volunteer tech team did not have enough people available to provide our usual um, hybrid service from the hall. Uh, So uh, please bear in mind the opportunity to join the tech team and minimize the chance that that will happen again. Uh, Laura B. says, grateful for the platform. Oh, and Sonia Cooper's already answered Laura Steele's question. Uh, Stan Horowitz says, This platform reminds me of a platform I attended at the New York Society for Ethical Culture, where Joe Schumann interviewed author Stephen Hassan on his book, The Cult of Trump. It is well worth reading. Mark Mayer says, Thank you, Casey, for a very interesting platform. Peter Bishop again, I think Casey's analysis about the major challenge of our time being due to cultish behavior. Uh, I think the way she described it is much better than anything I have thought recently. Margaret Conway, thank you, Casey and Perry. Both the platform and the reading were very thought-provoking. It's helpful to put belonging into the personal community and political contexts. Uh, Laura Steele, indeed food for thought, especially all those decision stuff. And I also think about this belonging thing in regards to our belonging in our Shepherd Park community. So when uh, Casey was talking about decision fatigue with regard to food in particular, uh, I was smiling because Alita and I uh, learned a wonderful quote uh, from some point, from some place. Uh, Marriage is two people asking each other what's for dinner until one of them dies, which <laughs> we found pretty uh, relevant here in our own household. All right, well, thank you to everyone who has shared your thoughts and attention this morning. Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at WES, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, the fund we're sharing half of the offering with is the Washington Interfaith Network. WIN is a broad-based, multiracial, multi-faith, non district-wide citizens power organization rooted in local congregations and associations. WES is one of the 50 dues-paying members of WIN, which engages leaders across the divides of race, culture, income, faith, and neighborhood in order to initiate public action on issues such as affordable housing, public safety, and youth development, and to partner with and hold the government and corporate sectors accountable for addressing these issues. Let's all take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, we offer several options. The slide shows the number for donating by text and a URL that takes you to the donate page on Wes's website, uh, which can also be reached at ethicalsociety.org, that's the website as a whole. If you're in the hall, you can place cash or a check in the basket in the back on your way out. And of course, you're always welcome to send a check by mail. Thank you for your generosity. We will now receive your gifts and the gift of music. (music) you <music> Thank you so much to the many people who helped to create this morning's time together, including staff members Andara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Maceo Thomas, and Tom Hutton, interim music coordinator Leo Morris, and guest musicians Laura Weiss, Munit Meslin, Pete Raffel, and Ann Joan, slide artists John and Abby Dakin, in-person greeters Donna Taylor and Shayla Bokum, and uh, John Pfeiffer on sound in the hall, and Sonia Cooper's running the slides. Also, thanks to Zoom usher Trang Duong and Zoom Coffee Hour host Joe London. Speaking of Coffee Hour, at the conclusion of the platform, please join us either for social hall, social hour in person around the foyer or on the patio, or for that virtual coffee hour, which you'll find at tinycc West Coffee Hour. First though, I wanna let you know that next week will be our official opening Sunday of the 2022-2023 platform season. The day we choose to celebrate our coming together again after summer travels and the start of the school year. Casey's platform will focus on how we're better with all of us together and how when we do, when we all do our part, we get so much more done than we even realize. It will also be KC's first platform with a group art project. And I think I've heard something about the chorus singing, but don't quote me on that. The day will also include post-platform activities to kick off the year for SEEK, our Sunday Ethical Education for Kids program. There will be games and opportunities to register children and youth, and to learn about ways you could volunteer for the program. You can also get more information about SEEK from its coordinator, Ndar Miles, her email address is N-D-A-R-A-M at ethicalsociety.org. Of course, you can tune into next Sunday's platform itself on Zoom as we continue with hybrid platforms. Uh, But to attend in person then or any Sunday, please RSVP at tiny.cc slash reservation you will need to bring your vaccination card or a picture of it. That's all next Sunday. Today is the last day to sign up for this year's Together in Exploration or tie groups, which will begin meeting next month. These are small groups of West members and friends who form stronger connections with each other by exploring the themes from the monthly soul matters packets. The groups disband next summer, so it's not a lifetime commitment. To sign up, please see the link in Thursday's News and Notes email, or I think it's going into the chat as well. And for more info, you can contact Maceo at M-A-C-E-O-T at ethicalsociety.org. Of course, we have other kinds of groups at West as well. For example, uh, our Scout Troop 1123 is having an open house today from 3 to 4 p.m. The Global Connections team is meeting tomorrow evening and the Immigration team will meet on Tuesday. You can find information about these and other opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails and on the calendar page of Wes's website. It's about time to wrap things up here. So let me thank you all for being part of platform today and invite you to join in our closing song, Circle Round.
3: I have a circle around me of people to love I have a circle around me of care I have a circle around me of people to love So I can stand up in the face of fear Stand up in the face of fear One step in front of the other One step back One love, one for each other Keeping a circle intact. Keeping a circle intact. You have a circle around you of people to love. You have a circle around you of care. You have a circle around you of people to love, so you can stand up in the face of fear. Stand up in the face of fear. One step in front. in a circle intact We have a circle around us of people to love We have a circle around us of kids We have a circle around us of people to love So we can stand up in the face of fear Stand up in the face of fear One step in front of the other The circle intact keeping the circle intact We are keeping a
0: circle intact. A few last reminders before we leave. If you're new to our community please send an email to our membership coordinator Maceo Thomas and introduce yourself and to reach Virtual Coffee hour pointer browser to tiny.cc slash Wes coffee hour. Now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding and commitment, bringing all of ourselves and honoring all aspects of others in our quest for a better world. Again, thank you all for joining in today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. Oh, no immigration meeting this Tuesday. Okay.